turn with me to the book of Daniel and chapter 7. Daniel and chapter 7. Those of you who have been around a little longer will recognize that um, we once did a series in this book. We began with chapter 1 and ended at the end of chapter 6 in uh, the year 2016. So that's roughly four years ago. We took a break at the end of chapter 6 primarily because the, the book itself changes gears and you cannot miss the fact that you are entering a completely new section of the book. Whereas prior to chapter 7, the book of Daniel was primarily talking about what was happening to Daniel and his friends in the empire or the kingdom of Babylon and then later on in the kingdom of the Medes and Persians. The moment you enter into chapter 7, the picture changes and it's no longer us being told about what was happening to Daniel and his friends, rather we are now being told about what Daniel was seeing in terms of visions and dreams and especially that related to the future. And also, whereas in the first six chapters, uh, Daniel was primarily interpreting other people's dreams. He was an interpreter of dreams. When we now come to chapter 7 onwards, uh, Daniel is himself the one having dreams that need to be interpreted. And sometimes he is so frustrated himself because he does not know what the dreams or visions he has, what they actually mean. So it's pretty obvious that there was a major break and so we took a break. Now that we are done with uh, the book of Romans in the uh, evening services, it only made sense that we get back and, and finish off the, the book that we had left hanging. And hence, our commencement at uh, chapter 7 of the book of uh, Daniel. Now, as you will notice, if you've ever read these chapters, um, the, the visions and dreams uh, that um, Daniel has are not the easiest to interpret uh, because even the interpretations that are given in these uh, chapters are not interpretations that go all the way. In other words, you won't sit there and say, okay, now I know this is talking about the Roman Catholic Church or now I know this is talking about the United States of America or China or things to that effect. It doesn't go that far. And so, even as we are seeking to interpret, we should be interpreting only as far as the Bible itself interprets. And that will leave us hanging to quite some extent. However, 
we will learn some truths, as you will notice even today with the subject heading that is there, a history of unrest and wars, a history of unrest and wars. That's a lesson that is already in itself being given to us, that we are in the midst of a history that is characterized by unrest, it is characterized by wars. Again, before we glide into chapter 7 of, uh, of uh, the book of Daniel, to remind us what the book is about. Because once we hold on to the rails, it helps us not to get lost as we are making our way through the thickets or through the details. So what is the book of Daniel about? It essentially has two lessons. Two lessons. First of all, it is that God is sovereign. So that whatever it is that is happening, and however it might appear to be detrimental to the well-being of God's kingdom and God's people, God is not biting his nails, fearing for himself and his people. He is still in absolute control. He is still doing exactly as he pleases, even though it seems to be negative towards him and his people. God is sovereign. And so this book ends up dealing with the, 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 the world powers and what they are doing. And in the midst of the world powers and what they are doing, every so often, the book opens the curtains, we put behind the curtains, and we don't find God biting his nails, we find God still in charge. And even uh, the passage that we will read today, we're going up to verse 8, and immediately after verse 8, it opens the curtains into heaven. And the moment we peep into heaven, you find God seated on his throne, no tension, no stress whatsoever, all things under his control. The second lesson that we are taught from the book of Daniel is that God is faithful. God is faithful. He is faithful to his covenant promises. And these covenant promises are those that he has made with his elect people. He remains faithful. And therefore, yes, we might find ourselves in difficult situations, stressful situations, sometimes even God's people being murdered muttered, but God is still saying that his kingdom and his people will ultimately triumph. And again, even as we make our way through chapter 7, you won't miss that fact. Even the way the chapter itself will end, it will end with God's people being victorious. So just remember those two lessons. God is sovereign and God is faithful. Well, with that rather lengthy introduction, 
What are we learning, especially from the first eight verses of this chapter? And it seems to me that the primary lesson there is about how turbulent life will be until the Ancient of Days himself intervenes. Let me say that again. That this passage that we are looking at, and indeed much of Daniel chapter 7, is teaching us about how turbulent life will be until the Ancient of Days, in other words, God himself intervenes. Well, let's read verse 1 down to verse 8. It's full of drama. It's a vision. It's a dream that Daniel saw. And therefore, we'll go through and then learn a few lessons from there. There we go. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirred, stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked. And behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth, it devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. 
Let's read the last verse also of this entire chapter. And the last verse says, Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me. And my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Well, the best place to begin then, brethren, is for us to grasp the immediate context and genre or type of literature of this chapter. Thankfully, Daniel himself tells us when it was that he saw this vision. He says at the beginning of uh, verse chapter 7, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Now, that's important for us as we are reading this because what it immediately says to us is that the book of Daniel is not written in chronological order. Well, it is, but up to a certain extent, and let me try and explain that. Chapter 1 up to chapter 6 moves fairly clearly through the Babylonian Empire where um, Daniel at least served under Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, remember whom he even mentions here, and then moves on to him serving under um, uh, Darius, rather Cy yes, Darius first, and then Cyprus second, and that was in another kingdom altogether, and that was the kingdom of the Medes and Persians. After that second kingdom overcame the first kingdom. Okay, so he served literally in two kingdoms, one after the other. As he enters into chapter 7, you will notice that he's gone right back, not all the way to Nebuchadnezzar, but at the beginning of this other king, and that is King Belshazzar. So if we were to go back in our Bibles, we would be somewhere between chapter 4 and chapter 5. Chapter 4 and chapter 5. Because notice, in chapter 5, the Bible tells us there that King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. And so it tells us something about Belshazzar there at the height of his rule, wanting to show off something of what he had achieved for his um, second-in-command guys to come and basically just admire him, and so forth. So what we are looking at in chapter 7 is somewhere there. Whereas by the time you are ending chapter 6, notice the words of um, Daniel at the end of chapter 6. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So clearly what he has done now is to take a break. He sort of shown us the history. This is what has happened, this is what has happened, this is what has happened. And then he says, fine, 
This is how I was interpreting dreams. Now, let's go back so that you may see some dreams that I had during this period. And so you will notice as we go through chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12, that again he will do exactly the same. He will first of all show us some dreams that he had during the Babylonian Empire and then also some dreams that he had during the Persian Empire as well. Okay, so that's the first aspect that we see here by way of immediate context. The second is um, that having finished the historical account, Daniel is now not just giving us visions, but is giving us what are called in normal theological circles or Bible study circles, apocalyptic visions. And apocalyptic visions primarily speak about the future and especially the end of the world. So that's the kind of visions that Daniel was beginning to have here. This has got nothing to do with the kind of modern prophetic visions of who's going to win the next election, which football team is going to win the Africa Cup, nothing like that. This is, this is big stuff. It's huge stuff. It's, it's about the, the entire earth and what is going to happen to it. And the very nature of apocalyptic uh, literature and vision is that it's full of symbolism. Uh, when, when Daniel is, is writing, as he's writing here, that I saw these beasts looking like a lion, looking like a bear, looking like a leopard, and, and the last one doesn't even know what it looks like. Uh, it's, it's not like he's trying to deliberately hide what it was that he was really seeing. This is what he was actually seeing. In other words, it's the way in which the very revelation was being given to him. It was being given to him full of symbolism. And that is part of the frustration that he obviously felt because he now was having to seek for interpretation. And later on, uh, you, you find him specifically asking, uh, for instance, uh, chapter 7, verse 15. Chapter 7, verse 15. The Bible says there, as for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made to me, made known to me the interpretation of these things. So he was also asking because these pictures with these symbols were real pictures that he was consequently having to deal with. And so what was Daniel doing? Well, at the end of the vision, whether it was a dream or he was just absent-minded and seeing it, doesn't matter. But at the end of the whole process, he realized that he has just seen 
something extraordinary. And because of that, he would quickly get a quill, if we were to speak in terms of today, get his, his keyboard or laptop or iPad and immediately, frantically, begin to type out something of what he had just seen. He, it would be some kind of summary. In other words, what we are reading is a summarized form of a rather elongated, dramatical display that caused his own heart to quicken its pace. Let's read quickly verse 1 again. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream, and listen to this, and told the sum of the matter. He basically summarized what it was that he had seen. Okay, so that's the immediate context. The next question that we now need to process is, okay, what is it that he saw in this vision, this very first vision? The best way to summarize it is simply this. He saw four winds steering up the great sea, and he saw four beasts coming out of the sea. That's the best way to summarize verse 2 all the way to verse 8. Four winds that churned up the waters, and out of those waters came out four beasts. We need to process this very quickly. What, uh, what is this sea? What does it stand for? And then also these four beasts, what do they stand for? Once we clarify that, we are ready to go. Thankfully, when he himself was asking for the interpretation in chapter 7 and verse 16, he is told what the sea is and is also told what the four beasts are. Remember what he said there. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who rise, who shall arise out of the earth. Okay, notice a few quick things. First of all, they are kings in the sense that they are reigning over kingdoms. You don't have a king without a kingdom. Okay. Although today you can have a president who does not have any people that are really under him. But this is to do with kingdoms and then the sea is actually planet Earth as he puts it there who shall arise out of the earth. So again, it's bare, mere symbolism 
that is there. It's not a real sea. Some interpreters are fighting in my reading, whether it's the Mediterranean Sea and so on. It doesn't matter. The point is, what was it symbolizing? And all it is saying is, there are going to be kings, mighty kings, that are going to arise with empires, of course, and it will be rising on this same planet, and it is planet Earth. Let's go then back to our passage of scripture. Notice there are four winds stirring up the great sea. If the great sea is simply the earth, the four winds are basically causing turmoil. That's basically what is happening there. They are causing unrest. They are causing chaos upon this earth. And it is in the midst of this agitation that is taking place that one king begins to arise over another. There are at least a few other passages that deal with uh, uh, the, the four winds. And let's just quickly peep at that. It's um, Isaiah 17 and Isaiah 57. Isaiah 17, um, oh, talking about the seas as well and the agitation. Um, Isaiah 17, Isaiah 17 and verse 12 and 13. And I'm particularly interested in the agitation that is taking place. Um, maybe let me begin from, yeah, verse 12 is all right. Ah, the thunder of many peoples. The thunder, like the thundering of the sea. Ah, the roar of nations. The roar like the roaring of mighty waters. The nations roar like the roaring of many waters. But he will rebuke them and they will flee away. Just like chaff on the mountains before the wind. There is the wind again. And whirlwind dust before the storm. So the picture there of wind blowing, the picture there of roaring mighty waters, and it is all a picture of nations and peoples that are in uproar. Chapter 57 and verse 20. Chapter 57 and verse 20. Now one of the reasons why doing this small exercise is so that the interpretation is not fanciful interpretation. You'll be able to say it's a biblical interpretation. In other words, the Bible is consistent with itself. Chapter 57 and verse 20, which is right towards the end. And this one is important because of something I'm about to say. Okay. Um, verse 20 Isaiah 57 verse 20 but the wicked 
are like the tossing sea. For it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up myrrh and dirt. And listen to this. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Now, two quick things there. First of all, it is the recognition that this turmoil, this chaos, this unrest is a fruit of sin. Sin in the human heart. Human beings are selfish. Human beings are sinfully selfish. And that sinful selfishness is what makes human beings so greedy that they will want to accumulate at the expense of other human beings. And that's what will come to explain this kingdom, one kingdom giving in to another kingdom. We'll come to that in a moment. But it's, it's this picture that we, need not, we shouldn't miss, miss out of on. That it's the nature of human beings, not some human beings, but all human beings after the fall in Genesis 3. All human beings are born sinful and selfish as a result of that. And inevitably, it is this wickedness that causes the torment, the tossing of the sea. But closely related to that is this, that it's part of the judgment of God. It's part of God's judgment. How? That God withdraws his common grace from nations that do not submit to him, that do not bow the knee to him. He withdraws his sensible presence. He withdraws his common grace and consequently they devour one another. Which is what Romans 1 verse 18 onwards teaches us about the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. Not that it's going to be revealed. Yes, it will, it will be revealed at the end of history, but it's already being revealed from heaven. And how is it being revealed from heaven? Well, towards the end, the Apostle Paul shows, especially um, right towards the end, verse 28 downwards in, in Romans chapter 1, as, as, as human beings are engaged in wickedness, when they, they are full of, of sinful selfishness, and consequently human life and living becomes almost impossible. Well, that's what this text is telling us. It's God saying there's no peace for the wicked. There will be no peace for the wicked. It is part of God's judgment as well. Now, brethren, it's important that we grasp this. The fact that we inevitably will remain in a world of unrest 
and a world of wars. Not because we've got some wrong people who are leaders of nations and leaders of empires and leaders of kingdoms. It is because we have this disease called sin in us which leads us in this wrong way. Because let's face it, we are all one. We, we are one people. We've got a common parent, Adam, all of us. And yet, as we shall soon see, when we begin to look at the outworking of uh, these kings, it is literally one destroying another. Let's quickly hurry on to see about these kingdoms now. These kingdoms. We begin from um, verse 4. Let's begin with verse 3. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. That's what he saw. Remember, he's not interpreting anything. That's what he saw. And he summarizes it for us. Four beasts. We've been told that there are four kings or four kingdoms. Bible students, Bible scholars have tried to arrive at who these kingdoms were. And there's something to be said for the way in which they have summarized them, that the first is the Babylonian kingdom, the second is the Medes and Persians, the third is the Greek kingdom, and then the last is the Roman kingdom, because it was now in the Roman Empire that Jesus arrived. Okay, so it, it's, it's a beautiful picture. And um, there, there's everything to be said for that approach. There's one difficulty. And it is this, that Daniel himself asked for an interpretation. And he was not told that it's the Babylonian kingdom and the Persian or the kingdom of the Medes wasn't told that. He was simply told, and we have the answer there, these four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. That's all he's told. And so I would rather say that even though there may be the Babylonians, the Medes and Persians, the Greek Empire, and finally the Roman Empire, this is a picture of the rest of human history. In other words, even if you got those out and then you put in any other kingdoms that have arisen, since then, you still find exactly the same. This picture of unrest, this picture of chaos, this picture of turmoil, and this picture ultimately of one overthrowing the other. It can be applied to any kingdom whatsoever. So, with all due respect to scholars, I'm not saying they are wrong. We may just find on the judgment day when God shows us what is happening here that they were right. But what I'm saying is this. That's not in the text. 
And in the text, what we know is that there are four kings, one after the other. Daniel says they were different. And each of them came after the other one went down. In fact, strictly speaking, it, each kingdom overcame the previous one. And so it was one growing after the other. They were different. We can read into that difference. But it seems to be clear that by the time Daniel is coming to the last, the last beast, he, 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 he fails to liken it to anything. Notice the way he described the first one. He said in verse 4, the first was like a lion. He's not saying it was a lion. He's saying it was like a lion. And then he says, and had eagle's wings. So obviously it cannot be a lion. Lions do not have wings. Praise the Lord, they don't. <laughs> okay, the second one was like a bear, verse 5. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. Again, it's not that it was a bear, but it was like a bear. The third, he says in verse 6, uh, was like a leopard. Again, he goes on to say, with four wings of a bird on its back. So, again, it was only like a leopard. But when he comes to the last one, he can't liken it to anything. And part of the reason why he fails to liken it to anything is because it's, it's part flesh and part machinery. Look at the way he puts it in the description there. Verse 7. After this I saw in the night vision, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. And that's part of the difficulties he's having to try and liken it to any animal. And then he says, it had great iron teeth. Now, that's already making life impossible by way of description because he would have had struggles to know which animal would have iron teeth. And to make it worse, he says there just before verse 8, it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. That's just now complicating the entire picture. And so in the end, he simply leaves it as the beast. That's the only way he can leave it, just as the beast. But one thing is sure, it was terrible. It's one of the reasons why he describes the fact that his spirit within him was anxious. Or the way this chapter ended, that's the reason why I took you there, he was greatly alarmed and his color changed. In other words, he became pale as he was processing these creatures, these beasts, one after the other. And especially as he came to the last one, because 
as I said, one would be humbled and then another one would arise out of the sea, something would happen to it, maybe its feathers would be plucked out and then another one would rise out of the sea and so on, being replaced and they are only getting worse and worse and worse and worse until finally you have the last one that utters blasphemies, blasphemies, the way it is phrased at the end of verse 8, and behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. Basically, boastful things. Speaking against heaven itself. Being blasphemous. That's what Daniel saw. Now, it's best that we contrast that to Daniel chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, and chapter 6. And it is this. There's not a single sign in the previous six chapters of tumult, of uh, chaos, of uh, unrest, and so on. All we are shown there are kings ruling. Even Nebuchadnezzar, all he does is to look at the, what he has already achieved and is saying, isn't this my achievement? and so on. But we are not actually told anything of the greed that made him gallop into nations in order to rob them, in order to, to get the spoil, in order to, to murder the, the, perhaps the men and leave widows or, or to take their children, their sons and, and dash them against rocks and so on. We're not told anything of that. All we're doing is we are seeing Nebuchadnezzar in all his glory. Belshazzar in all his glory. Darius in all his glory. Cyprus in all his glory. It is as we enter into chapter 7 that we realize that behind that glory lies conflict, bloodshed, death. That's what chapter 7 does. It shows us that behind those great empires and their wealth, there's ugliness, ugliness, and wickedness in terrible degrees. That's human history. That's human history. And I think it's important for us, brethren, that we never lose sight of this other side of this other side. Because that's the world we are in. That's the history that we are in. We are on a ship that is 
in tumultuous waters and kings arising out of those waters producing that which makes God want to bring this world to an end. Let me hurry on to close by putting it this way. Verse 9, which we'll look at the Lord willing next week. The ancient of days comes in. As I looked, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. And then he is described in verse 9 there. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. And then verse 10 brings in the church. The church across the edges. Listen to this. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands saved him. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment. In other words, these who are standing before him are also sitting on thrones. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. The saints of God are brought in on that picture. But that's for next week. We'll come to that later. Here's my point. That I'm concerned, brethren, that our education should include the reality of fallen humanity. Who we really are. Sadly, it doesn't. Somehow, we are made to go through our education and all we're thinking about is I'm going to have a job and I'm going to have a salary and then, okay, make a bit of money and finally I die, well, I've died, so you know, other people have died before, so what's the big thing? Our education does not help us to see that God made a perfect world and then sin came in and it didn't come in to destroy those bad people. It came in right at the fountainhead, poisoned all the waters that flow out of Adam and Eve. Flow out of Adam and Eve. And therefore... It's not that the bad people are over there. Outside Christ, we are all bad people. And all we need is the opportunity for that to begin to show. And I'm concerned also because KBC, as a general statement, comprises professionals. Professionals. We, we get our diplomas, we get our degrees, we get into good jobs, we get into positions of influence and so on. And unless we grasp the real world in which we are, we end up chasing mice. Chasing mice until we die. 
We fail to come to grips with the real world in which we are. Perhaps we may be misled by the glitter of the palaces that comprised the first six chapters that we lose sight of the fact that we are actually in a world of unrest and wars. And therefore, we fail to use our professionalism relevantly. It's almost like when you go out of church, we switch off biblical Christianity, and then we just begin to function like everybody else. Failing to realize that this book tells us the world in which we are and what's wrong with the world. Fallen human beings. Fallen human beings. Outside Christ, we are fallen creatures. It's not one system is bad, another system is the good one. It is that all systems have human beings in them and human beings are wicked and therefore there is no peace. Let me quickly use an example and I'll hurry on to close. Male-female battles. They are Males who've really experienced the wrong end of females, that they warn any man who's about to marry to say, never trust a woman. Young man, never trust a woman. Women are all like that. And then you have women who have experienced the wrong end of men, who also say our greatest challenge in life is to liberate ourselves from men, from male chauvinism. Men are bad. They are bad. And so they've Put into the modern day feminism that the moment a man says anything, you cannot miss the fact that they are ready for a fight. What's happened there? Here's my point it's possible to find actual Christians in one of the two camps. Actually, Christians, warning you, you're about to get married and they're telling you, you know, be careful. You can't trust. Be careful of the person you're going to get married to, and so on. You, you, and they're supposed to be Christians. Why? They failed to see that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That unless the heart is converted, unless men and women experience the, the power of the Spirit of God within them, 
they will go that way. It's not the men who are bad. It's not the women who are bad. All together are fallen creatures. Now you can apply this to employers and employees. You can apply this to black people and white people fighting all the time. You can apply this to politicians, ruling party and opposition party. You can apply this to the rich and the poor and so on. You always will find when we lose sight of this biblical truth, you always will find the problem is the other side. The problem is the other side. They are the bad people. And as Christians, we need to wake up to the fact that it's all men are sinners. So where does that leave us? We must be like Daniel. Notice in the previous six chapters, he was under Babylonian rule. He was under Persian rule. And yet, he was a trusted employee. He did his job well. That when his enemies were out of the same wickedness, fallen hearts, wanted to, to bring him down. They could not find a fault with him with respect to his work ethic. They couldn't. And he wasn't busy pointing fingers at, you know, you bad ruler and, you know, you bad this, bad that. No, 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 no. no. He, he, he did his job well. That even when his boss agreed to throw him into the lion's den, the man could not sleep because he knew he had just thrown away his best man. That's how we should be. In a fallen world, yes. With all that stinks, yes. But once we are given a place to serve, as believers, we should serve with Everything that speaks about godliness, holiness, integrity, hard work, you can't miss it. And then number two, we must realize that what we are doing is simply managing symptoms. The disease is sin, Christ is the answer. The gospel is the ultimate answer. And that's what the book of Daniel is all about. He was serving, yes. But at the end of the day, he was bringing even these kings to acknowledge the real God of heaven. That's what he was doing. It was an evangelistic life. It was a life that recognized that ultimately these rulers need my God. It's not systems. It's not that men are bad or women are bad. No, no, no. It's that they need Christ. And that's essentially what he was doing there. And it's the, on that note, brethren, that I, I really want to end my message today. Because it bothers me when I see a Christian who's busy and often busy making money. 
through professionalism. But when we now come to say evangelism, nowhere to be seen. And yet still complaining so much about my boss, so much about men, so much about employers, so much about the poor or the rich, really complaining. And then when it comes to that which changes hearts, nowhere to be seen. That bothers me. That bothers me. Because it's like a doctor who's not wanting to, to address the malaria. All he wants is to give you a bit of panado here and that and so on, just make you feel comfortable. While the malaria is wreaking havoc in your body. We shouldn't do that. We should realize that this world is actually going from bad to worse because of sin in human hearts. And as we shall see next week, ultimately, it's the Lord's children saving him who act as salt and light in the world. And that's what we ought to be as we seek to share the good news that Jesus saves to this fallen world. Amen.